The violin is close to celebrating its 500th anniversary. Nobody knows exactly when it was created, but obviously there was a long evolution over millennia of stringed instruments. So we know that in India, in 3000 BC, there were some kind of crude stringed instruments. And we know that the Egyptians played stringed instruments. Humans had figured out that if you stretch strings over a box and pluck them, that the vibration of the string would be amplified. However, it took thousands of years for anybody to think of a way to sustain the sound of that string with a bow. And the first people who apparently figured this out were the Mongolians, because they were riding around on horseback all the time. And I guess the horse's tails lost, the, no, I'm making that up. <laughs> you all know that the bow of instruments, string instruments that are bowed, are strung with horsehair, whether it's a violin or a viola or some old thousand-year-old Mongolian instrument. So anyway, in Asia, on the steps with the wild Mongolian horsemen, somebody accidentally uh, put the hairs to the bow and said, aha. And this is, this is apocryphal storytelling, but <laughs> nevertheless, the uh, evolution from there was that it happens that northern Italy was a port for all of Europe and Asia. So people coming from Damascus and all over would have come to Genoa and Venice. Needless to say, these were the cities where all of the world's crossroads bred inventions that were the hybrids among various things. Now, Europe had a great tradition of plucked stringed instruments. By the 15th century, they had developed into things called viols, V-I-O-L-S. And a viol, they came in all sizes, called a consort of viols. Viols had frets on the fingerboard, and they were tuned not too much differently from the modern guitar, mostly in fourths with a third out in the middle. And the viols were used for all kinds of music, but certainly they were the most aristocratic instrument around. Suddenly, with the coming from Asia of bowed instruments, people started to tinker with the idea of bowed vials. Well, okay, that wasn't difficult because the vial uh, was shaped like a box, but gradually they put the indentations on the side so that you could maneuver a bow up and down and not bump into the instrument. The big development that changes from a viol to a violin or a cello or a viola or a double bass is that the frets go away. So the instrument that comes out sometime in the first half of the 1500s, the crudest violin, becomes uh, a dance instrument, something that a traveling minstrel will carry with him and uh, entertain people with his tunes in addition to his juggling and uh, you know tumbling. So, so the, the first violinists were sort of low on the social totem pole. They were the, the court jesters or whatever. And um, so the, the violin itself was an instrument of ill repute, so to speak. <laughs> Now, 
gradually, this violin took hold because, of course, dances and weddings always needed entertainment. And so as the demand for violins grew, uh, of course, violin makers began to develop their craft. For some inexplicable reason, a tiny area of northern Italy was the hotbed of violin production. First, there is a town called Brescia, and there's a man, uh, Gaspero di Salò, who created violins in Brescia of a higher level than the ones that had been produced uh, for the minstrels and the jugglers and the dance players. 30 miles from Brescia, this is all in Lombardy, sort of in central northern Italy, there's a town called Cremona. In uh, some time in the early 1500s, a man named Andrea Amati opened his workshop, developed the idea of the violin, and the first violin that survives today, it's in a museum in Oxford, England, was made in 1564 by Andrea Amati. Now, of course, there were thousands of violins before then, they have not survived. But this is the first one that survives, and although it's in a museum, all the great museum violins have to be taken out and played, because one of the extraordinary things about the violin is that it improves with use. Uh, however great a violin is, if it stays in a museum case for hundreds of years, it will lose its beauty. So even when you hear about 16th century and 17th century violins that are housed behind glass somewhere, you know that some very skilled violinist is paid to come around and take them out of their cases every week and, and keep playing them. Amati had two sons, and uh, they also followed the family trade. They built violins, and the techniques developed. Now, this is extraordinary. The violin, unlike many instruments, including my instrument of preference, does not grow in its history along a linear path. If you imagine keyboard instruments, they've certainly gotten larger and louder and have a much wider range of tone, but they were basically responding to the need for larger, louder instruments. The violin evolved because in the height of the Italian Renaissance, everyone believed that everything was metaphysically interconnected. I'm sure you've all seen that famous drawing by Leonardo da Vinci of Vitruvian Man, where he's standing in a circle. And the idea that geometric shapes predate the existence of life and that somehow everything in the universe is in order, in an order with a capital O, is central to Renaissance thought. So the violin, if you look at the schematics of the way these great violinists crafted their violins, is designed with concentric circles and the golden ratio. And then not only we change the flat top and the flat back of the violin body so that both are arched so that it's actually a little bit more like a ball. And suddenly the properties of these strings vibrating is enhanced in a much more beautiful way, a way that can be controlled by the maker. But of course, every piece of wood that is cut is distinct, it's unique. 
It has its own personality. So these makers had to get to know each piece of wood that they chose, which means that in our modern era, no matter how exactly we replicate the dimensions of a great violin to the micromillimeter, it won't necessarily be a great violin because it's not the same piece of wood. So it's a craft that can never become mechanized to as high a degree of perfection as the handcrafting that went into these violins. Amati, as I said, had two sons, and his grandson, the son of one of those two sons, uh, um, Niccolo Amati, was the greatest of the Amati family. Flourished in Cremona, and around 1630, plague and famine wiped out most of Cremona, the only violin maker to survive, there were 24 master violin makers at the time, was Niccolo Amati. So there was a patch there where it was, where it was uh, tough going for the violin. But Amati, the young Amati, survived and had two great pupils, one named Guarneri and a much younger one, a 12-year-old, in fact, named Antonio Stradivari. <laughs> so Guarneri had children as well, and uh, Guarneri's grandson, Giuseppe Guarneri, is the one called Del Gesù, because every violin he made was inscribed with the IHS in Greek for, for Jesus Christ. And these are the greatest violins of the Guarneri tradition. Stradivari, I don't need to tell you, uh, has attained mythic status with his violins now selling for up to $15 million. Um, Obviously, you're buying more than violin when you pay $15 million for a musical instrument. You know, you're, you're buying into, you own the Renaissance or something like that. But <laughs> Stradivari was the king of violin makers. He lived to be 93 and spent every waking day of his life crafting violins. He discovered exactly how to shape the F-holes. He experimented with every kind of wood. By the way, the top of the violin, always made of spruce, is a different wood from the back of the violin, always made of maple. So these violin makers discovered all kinds of secrets. They discovered they had to make the fingerboard and the pegs out of a harder wood than the belly and the back of the violin. They figured out that the bridge had to be arched just so to give the right vibrations and to allow the player to change strings. So every detail of this instrument has been finely crafted. A violin has 70 pieces that have to be glued together perfectly, but first the wood has to be cut from the maple or spruce from preferably tall old trees on north side facing sides of high mountains, right? You don't just go out in your backyard. <laughs> now somebody pointed out to me there is a treatise in Italian called making violins from the debris of destroyed buildings. And so there were all kinds of levels of violin even hundreds of years ago. But the great violins had very specific requirements. The strings were made of cat gut, as they often still are. That is not the guts of a cat. That is sheep or goat, mostly, intestines. And the um, bows, of course, bows have changed. But the bows were always strung with 180 horse hairs. Now, there was an evolution of the bow. It was called the bow because it used to be bow-shaped, like a rainbow. 
And then it became flat because there was a man named Arcangelo Corelli. Corelli was not a violin maker, he was a great violinist, born a little over 30 years before Bach and Handel, and he said that if the bow were flat, we could do a lot more. He was at the level of people in the late 1600s, he was a great virtuoso, and of course, a great composer. I think you could say Corelli was the first person to write chamber music because he composed music not just for a solo violin, but for two violins playing in harmony and a basso continuo. Not too long after Corelli is a man named Antonio Vivaldi. I'm sure you know about Vivaldi. You all know the four violin concertos he wrote called The Four Seasons, but he wrote 220-some other violin concertos, often very good, and in total, 500-and-some concerti for all kinds of instruments. So prolific Mr. Vivaldi in Venice, all of this happening in northern Italy. Now, of course, the violin spread to England and to Germany and throughout Europe. The French became great violinists. But Italy remained the epicenter of violin making. Stradivarius took about 30 years from his fortunate apprenticeship at age 12 with Amati until he had really perfected the best violins. And today, we estimate that there are at least 550 existing Stradivarius violins. The total number of instruments he probably made in his life was 1,000 to 1,200. Some of those were celli, but most, most of them were, in fact, violins. And most of them that survive now have names. They're named after some great player that owned them, or after uh, a palace where they spent a lot of time. The, the one that was sold for $15 million was the Lady Blunt Stradivarius. But anybody who has a Stradivarius can tell you its whole family tree and its pedigree and its history. So there are great violinists today who don't disdain the Stradivarius, but they prefer to play other instruments. They might prefer to play a Del Gesù. It's not the only great violin, and I just want to dispel that myth so that um, if somebody offers you an Amati or a Guarneri, <laughs> you, you take it. <laughs> so a lot of this repertoire in the Renaissance and in the Baroque was used in dances, in weddings, in royal ceremonies, but of course, much of it was also for the church. The composers were careful to distinguish between the one and the other, and they called the musics that were, the musics, the music that was designed for all of the secular uses, uh, sonate di, di camera, in other words, to be played in a room, any room, and the other sacred music, sonate di chiesa, so a sonata di camera would have dance movements, alamans, sarabands, jigs, courants. Uh, they could be French dances, they could be Italian dances, but that didn't have its place in the church. So the sonata di chiesa typically had the same alternation of fast and slow movements, but no dance names. You probably know that Bach was a pretty good violinist himself. He, in fact, owned six violins made by the Tyrolean violin maker, Jakob Steiner, and uh, he would play whichever one of these suited his fancy. He composed over a 17-year period 
six great pieces for the violin, uh, three sonata di chiesa type pieces and three sonata di camera type pieces. The extraordinary thing is that Bach was not a rich man and almost everything else he wrote in his whole life he wrote because somebody was going to pay him for it. All those great cantatas came because every certain Sunday he had to produce a cantata for the religious occasion with that particular liturgy. The six great violin suites he composed on spec, so to speak, just because he wanted to write something which heretofore had hardly been done, works for unaccompanied violin. So he left us this great legacy, and these pieces are still a central part of every violinist's repertoire. The other great composer who addressed himself to the violin at this time in the Baroque was Handel. Handel was born the same year as Bach, and the year Bach died, 1750, Handel wrote one of his last violin sonatas. Now, when I use the word sonata, please understand this has nothing to do, if any of you were ever forced to sit through a music history class, with the classical form called the sonata, with the exposition and the recapitulation and none of that. This is just the original meaning of the word sonata, which means something that is sounded. Of course, there are compositional techniques. We're going to play you two movements of this wonderful sonata that Handel wrote in 1750. And uh, you'll hear imitation, you'll hear counterpoint. The second movement is a fugue, but it is not a sonata in the later meaning of the word, just to get rid of that confusion. So I have the great pleasure of introducing you to my dear friend and fabulous violinist, Mr. Richard Rood. He is playing a 1917 violin made by Michelangelo Pulisi from Catania. Just, it, you don't need to steal it. <laughs> it's more earthy like the Sicilians because, you know, around uh, a certain time, Corelli was offended that Handel thought anybody should ever play above fourth position, but um, Handel really moved things forward. So you're going to hear uh, the culmination of the Baroque um, on the violin.
he'll be back. <laughs> As you can tell, I know you knew this already, the violin possesses an incredible range of sound quality. It's the most evocative instrument, and forgive me if you play another instrument or love another instrument, the only instrument that can surpass it is the human voice because the violin can play any degree of a certain pitch. The jump from fretted instruments to non-fretted instruments, which at its outset didn't foresee what the violin was going to become, was the very thing that gave the violin the freedom to be so expressive. I mentioned that in the old days, even in that piece, it never went above this D. Well, now pieces go here and here and anywhere. So in order to accommodate that change, violins had to have their necks stripped off. <laughs> it's all right, they survive. And a longer neck has to be put on so that the violinist can play much higher notes. So when someone says they own a Guarneri or a Del Gesù or a Stradivarius or a, a Matti, they're not saying that the exact violin is intact from the 16 or 1700s. They're saying that the soul part of the violin, the body, which is what creates the amplification of the vibration, has been left intact and that the neck has been added on. Now you might ask, since, <laughs> I'll ask for you, why do these violins still work even when they weren't designed to have this much longer tailpiece that has these much higher notes? Because this central organizing principle was to amplify, it still functioned exactly the same way. In fact, one of the great qualities of a Stradivarius with an improved, well, a modern longer neck on it is that it amplifies those super high notes extraordinarily well, as if Stradivarius had known all along that it would amplify anything that vibrated in that body he created. That's what's happened. So when we play something else, it'll be a 19th century piece, and one of the things that you'll notice that's very different about it is the use of very high notes. You'll also notice the use of very low notes. Well, Bach and Handel had low notes, why didn't they use them? The gut strings down on G weren't quite able to keep the pressure that was required, and they were notoriously ugly sounding. So most Baroque music and Renaissance music is written on the D, A, and E strings. These are the four strings of the violin. So most of the Baroque music was written in these strings. Once people figured out how to wind metal fiber around the gut, that G string suddenly became a lot more reliable and it could be used, you'll hear it used in this next piece, to affect to hear these really low, wonderful notes. Also, the gut E string was eventually replaced with steel. So needless to say, steel strings were a lot stronger than the, the gut E string. We're going to play you a piece by the Norwegian composer, Edvard Grieg. He wrote three violin sonatas. The third one is the famous one that's played a lot, a C minor. And to some extent, the third sonata, which we're going to play one movement of, has Norwegian derivative material in it. But really, it's the second 
violin sonata by Grieg that has most of the Norwegian folk melodies. Grieg said that this sonata was Norway, but with a much broader horizon, <laughs> by which I think he meant Europe. So this, this is the slow movement from the uh, sonata number three by Edvard Grieg. You listen, you'll hear not only very high notes and very low notes, but other things that you did not hear in the sonata by Handel. You'll hear pizzicato, which is the plucking of strings instead of the bowing of strings. You'll hear harmonics. I hardly even want to begin to discuss what harmonics are. <laughs> of course, I will. Um, <laughs> the whole reason that a violin is tuned in fifths is that the number of cycles per second in a note that's a fifth above another note is half again as many in a perfect Pythagorean world. So if this piano is tuned to A440, then this E is about 660 cycles per second. Okay, the people, the, the Greeks knew this. Well, the Greeks who did know it were in a secret society and if they told anybody else, Pythagoras cut their tongues off. But <laughs> some Greeks knew this. And because of this, the whole system of our scale and the relationships of intervals sprang up because an octave is the exact relationship of two to one. It won't happen so well on a piano, but if I hold down this D and I play this D an octave above it, it sort of keeps ringing because it's one of the natural overtones of the lower D, it's the first one. So the violin is full of these natural overtones and when you divide the length of a string exactly in half or in a third or in a quarter and barely touch it with your finger instead of pressing it all the way down to the fingerboard, the resultant sound is higher than the note you'd get if you pushed it all the way down and it's the harmonic. So it has a different quality of sound. It's very ethereal and fluty sounding. But the later composers in the 19th century and beyond used this effect of harmonics so uh, you'll also hear harmonics in this Greek sonata. There won't be a test. I just wanted to let you know about that. Okay, so now, Richard, uh, we're going to perform for you the slow movement of Grieg's third violin sonata.
many of you know this, Richard is one of the concertmasters of Orpheus in New York City, the conductorless orchestra, and he's one of the concertmasters of the Santa Fe Opera, and we're incredibly honored that he is the concertmaster of the Santa Fe Concert Association Orchestra. So whenever you come to hear us do orchestral concerts, Richard is sitting there in the concertmaster's seat. Until the 19th century, the concertmasters were, in fact, the conductors by and large. There are, of course, exceptions to that, but the way that the concertmaster, or leader as they're called in England, uh, uses their bow shows the orchestra how to play, and indeed still shows the violin section and most of the string section how to play. So the conductor and the concertmaster are, in a sense, co-conductors of the orchestra. The role of the violin changed. Monteverdi, who was from Cremona, um, grew up around this culture, and so he naturally, when he started writing operas, put violins into the operas alongside the viols, and gradually the viols were eclipsed by the violins, which of course had a greater expressive capacity. The tone overall of an orchestra that you hear now is the tone of a violin because Claudio Monteverdi back in the early 1600s began to develop the proportions of the modern orchestra that there would be so many violins and then fewer violas and fewer cellos and fewer basses and then uh, whatever wind players he could pick up off the street you know so <laughs> he had already in 1600s this sound concept in mind and this meant that as the orchestra developed into the symphony, thanks to a man named Stamitz living in Mannheim in the first half of the 1700s, that was <laughs> simplified, but that'll do for now. Um, <laughs> the symphony orchestra has grown up as a body of violins with smaller bodies of other instruments. And chamber music, which started with Corelli, we can fairly say, has developed also with the violin as a central player. Haydn was living out in Nowheresville, Austria, a couple years after the Handel Sonata that Richard and I played was composed. He was a young man in his early 20s. He'd been hired uh, by an amateur violinist to create music. Well, Haydn played the violin and the viola, and there was a baker, and there was a priest who played the cello and the viola. The reason... <laughs> Don't write this down. The reason there is a string quartet is because of who the neighbors happen to be. That's not really true. But Haydn wrote 10 of these string quartets to earn his living, and he discovered that he loved the form. And after he was 22 or whatever he was, he continued through his long life to write string quartets, 83 of them in all, I think. So Haydn invented this particular form of chamber music which is so central to the chamber music repertoire. And then Mozart and then Beethoven and then Schubert and other composers picked up the idea that a string quartet was an ideal blend of instruments. Two violins, one viola, and a cello. Forgive me if you know this, but the violin, the viola is just a fifth lower and the cello an octave below the so again, a sense of proportion, something dear to Renaissance hearts, is preserved not just in each individual instrument, but in that combination of instruments, which many regard as the most perfect combination of instruments in a chamber setting. 
Okay, so we have the perfect ideal platonic thing going on, and meanwhile there are great virtuosi developing on the violin who don't really care so much about the proportions and the finesse, but the glory of being able to play faster and higher and better than anybody else. And this is also a very noble profession. Perhaps the first great Italian violin virtuoso was a guy named Tartini. Tartini didn't start out to be a musician on purpose. Uh, he was in a friar's school, and so he was surrounded by music and he did some. But he went into law, he married, and unfortunately his wife was the mistress of the cardinal, so he was kicked out of the town where he lived. <laughs> and he decided, I don't know why, he decided to take up the violin. So extraordinarily, because most violinists start when they're three years old or five years old. He started when he was 20 years old. And he became one of the great violin virtuosi, composed hundreds of sonatas and concerti. And his most famous piece is called the Devil's Trill Sonata, which he says, legend has it, came to him because the devil appeared to him in a dream playing a violin at the foot of his bed. And when he awoke, he dutifully wrote down the piece that he heard. So he was the devil's amanuensis, and the resulting piece was really the most difficult violin piece from a technical point of view that had been written up until that point, because it had trills, simultaneous trills being played on different strings at the same time. So obviously violin technique was moving faster and faster toward the technically impossible. But the great virtuoso of all times was a man named Niccolo Paganini. The laurels went back to Italy, of course, you know. For a little while, there were some French upstarts that were the greatest violins in the world, but then Paganini came along. Paganini apparently was an odd-looking fellow, very tall and gaunt, uh, might have had what Vladimir Horowitz had, Marfan syndrome, where the, the limbs might be excessively long. Anyway, apparently he could reach things on the fingerboard of his violin that normal violinists couldn't reach. But never mind that, he had unerring intonation. Uh, the steel E string hadn't quite been perfected yet, and E strings often snapped. And it was purported that Paganini, who played with such uh, ferocious virtuosity, snapped not only his E string at every concert, but sometimes his A and his D string as well, which he liked because he could impress his audience by playing the entire piece on his G string. <laughs> <laughs> and he was famous for doing these two octave leaps on a single string with unerring, you know, he, he, on a violin, it doesn't forgive. If you're a millimeter off of the note, it sounds flatter, it sounds sharp. P Paganini never had that problem. He would land right there. So needless to say, he was the stuff of legend. Uh, Bonaparte's sister fainted along with dozens of other women at his <laughs> concert. And um, he did for the violin what Franz Liszt did for the piano. And I might say Franz Liszt and Chopin and Berlioz and other great musicians all held Paganini in the highest esteem. They thought he was just a violin hero. So he made the violin an instrument that suddenly middle class people wanted to have in their homes. Everybody wanted a violin. Well, it was enough along in the Industrial Revolution that that dream could be realized. So instead of these handcrafted violins that took a minimum of well, let's see, five to 10 years to dry the wood and then 200 hours per violin to do the cutting. Uh, Guarneri del Gesù is reputed to have cut all of his F holes by hand, by eye. No drawings, no schematics, no nothing. 
So suddenly, we live in a world where millions of people want violins and the world is capable of producing millions of violins. So that's why I said when somebody buys a Stradivarius for millions of dollars, they're not just buying a superb quality instrument, possibly better than any modern instrument could be, they're also buying a, a piece of a world that no longer exists. And I guess for many of us, although we're happy to be here, there's a, a sense of that must have been incredible. And uh, you know that Lady Blunt wasn't the only Stradivarius that fetched millions of dollars. It just happens to be the highest. But um, in any case, the mass-produced violin is born. And uh, along with it, concert halls expand. And suddenly, the purpose of the violin is to uh, be a virtuoso instrument. Now, I have a real treat in store for you. The Concert Association, in addition to bringing performers from around the world to do what they do in Santa Fe, has a most thriving, wonderful education program run by Jenna Browning, my darling wife, Jenna. <laughs> this program now, sir, it started four years ago at nothing, virtually. It now serves 5,000 kids every year. And these public school kids come to the Lenzik, we go to them, they come to hear free opera. We make all kinds of contact. We get professionals into the schools, working with uh, the band teachers and the chorus teachers and the orchestra teachers, and Jenna orchestrates all this and dreams it all up. One core of the program is that some of the most talented performers in Santa Fe coach with us, and we provide them with lots of performance opportunities, and they go on to do marvelous things. And uh, we're going to introduce you now to an exceptionally talented young man named Phoenix Avalon. He's going to perform this uh, full concerto by Bruch, written in uh, 1866, with an orchestra in Boulder, Colorado, uh, October 12th and 13th. So if you want to go up to Colorado, great. But if you can't, we're going to perform the third movement, the finale of this Bruch concerto for you here right now. Sorry we don't have a full orchestra. But please give a warm welcome to Phoenix Avalon.
so uh, the, the joy of the mass-produced violin, of course, is that suddenly music is accessible to all of us and we can all play in school orchestras and community orchestras. And not everybody can play in a symphony orchestra, but a lot of us enjoy being out in the audience or in my case, standing in front of them and just listening while I wave. <laughs> so it's, it's a great change that, that music has become so public. And what I want to do in the second half really is just focus on a little more music because uh, of course I'll answer any questions or try to answer any questions that you have about the violin. But Richard and I want to bring you into the 20th century. Claude Debussy, at the end of his life during World War I, wanted to write six sonatas for different instruments. And he didn't live long enough to do that. He completed the third, which was his violin sonata, and that was all he wrote. So in 1917, he wrote this. Um, he, out of patriotism, signed them uncharacteristically by Claude Debussy, French composer. That was his war effort. So this sonata employs even more techniques that you haven't heard yet on the violin, sliding between notes intentionally, uh, lots of very high harmonics, and not to mention the fact that Debussy's harmonic language is different from anything that had preceded it. So we're going to perform for you the first movement of Debussy's sonata for the violin. Thank you. 
around here. It's just, you've heard enough about the violin. Do you have any questions? I mean, between the two of us, we can probably make a good stab at anything. Richard knows more about the bow than any other living violinist, by the way. Yes. Uh, since Stradivarius lived until his 90s, how many uh, violins did he make? Well, there's 550 around now, maybe 600, but we guess over 1,000, and they just didn't all survive. You know, I, found, I mentioned the bow. Go, yes, please. Um, what kind of a instrument did Phoenix play? Is it a full? No, Phoenix is not playing a full-size instrument yet. So he's not going to invest in something until he's large enough to play a full-size <laughs> violin. Same range of pitch, but not the same range of tone. So he will produce a greater variety of tone when he's grown into a full-size violin. Yeah, he, he's playing, we call them fractional-sized instruments, so he's playing a half-size. So when he gets a little bigger, he'll get a three-quarter size, and then he'll eventually get what we call full-size. And, and, and many of the great makers actually made fractional-sized instruments for talented. Spe special, talented, yeah, young people. By the way, this was not on Paganini's violin. This was invented only later in the 19th century, the chin rest. So if you can imagine Paganini and Bach and all those fellows just played straight down. Yes? Yeah. Uh, you talk about the, re uh, the Industrial Revolution and people being able to get instruments, but today are there great makers of the violin? Yes. Okay. So, but, I mean, will someone pay 15 million for no. creating <laughs> out there? Look, I mean this money thing is... <laughs> no, no, no. No, I'm, no, here's what I'm going to tell you. If somebody pays 300 bucks for a bottle of Saint-Emilion, it's because it's a really good wine. Right. If someone pays $168,000 for a bottle of Penfold, whatever that Australian thing is, Cabernet Sauvignon, it's because they can. It's not because it's worth $168,000 worth of wine. And I think that the, the $15 million uh, Stradivarius was bought by somebody who had an agreement with the auction house that all $15 million would go to the Japanese tsunami victims. So most Stradivarius violins go for a mere two or three million. <laughs> can, can I just add one thing yes. about that? You know, that it's interesting, a lot of my colleagues, the, the play chamber music and soloists in you know, the great halls of the world, uh, play on what we call modern instruments, the instruments that have been made in the last 50 years. Because obviously nobody, I mean, many players can't afford even a million dollars for violin. So, um, and uh, these instruments have, have really wonderful kinds of sounds. <laughs> That's okay. That's why we're talking now. <laughs> and uh, uh, the, I, the way I think of it, even the fiddle that I play, which is, you know, 1917, so it's, you know, hopefully I'll live to see it turn 100 years old. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's like a modern instrument. The, I, I think of it like fabric. You can have great silk, you know, which is sort of like the 18th century Italian violins, but you can have great cotton, too. It's a, it's a different fabric. It's a different kind of sound palette. And if you're curious, I mean, the, there are few times in history that this has happened where people, you know, a lot of people could really make a good living making 
violins, and we're in one of those periods right now. So there, there, there are a number of makers that are making instruments and selling them new instruments, violins, in the sort of fifty to seventy-five thousand dollar range, which is, you know, you can make a dozen a year. Then <laughs> and sell them, <laughs> sir. The bow was perfected later than the violin by Tour. Uh, you're the bow guy. Well, it's, it's, it's fascinating to me because, I, you know, like Joe was saying, that this whole this pinnacle of making a violin happened in Cremona, Italy. It's this little itty-bitty town in northern Italy. I mean, why there was this plethora of incredible makers. I mean, it's just so bizarre. Mirror, yeah. And what happened with the violin bow, the bow developed... Uh, a little later, but this is partly because the mu the bow mirrored the development of the bow mirrored the development of the music. So the music is becoming more and more complicated. And you have to do all this bouncing stuff and fly around. And the the players were saying all oh, these other things are like really awkward. So there was a, a great violinist by the name of Biotti, and he worked with a guy in Paris, Francois Tort, and he was the Tort being the maker. And he was saying, you know, I need to do this, I need to do that. And they experimented with all different kinds of woods, with the length of the bow, with the, the, the height of the frog hair, with the, the, how wide the ribbon of hair is going to be, I mean, everything. And Tort, basically, about around 1800, roughly, you know. So it was much later. We're talking, you know, 100 years later after this other pinnacle. But just, you know, 1800 in Paris. And now we've got, which is really the pinnacle of bow making, which hasn't really been surpassed. There, were, there was a guy maybe 50 years later and another guy about 40 years later. That, that, but they're like cars, you know. The, the, the Tort, Tort just, he, he made the most phenomenal sticks. Picot in the mid-1800s added a kind of beefy quality to them. By the way, all of the sticks come from one bit of Brazilian shoreline. You can't... Yeah, they're get the wood from just They're all made anywhere. from Pernambuco, which is a, a, <laughs> it's a you know, South American wood. You know, mine and you know, all the good bows are made from Pernambuco, amazingly. What, what bow are you using, and do you have others, and what, if you can explain, like, the difference from the sound of the violin? Yeah, um, the, the bow, uh, I collect bows, so I, you know, that's, I have a love for the passion for this, the study of bows. And this bow was made about 1850, and in the history of bow making, uh, this this maker Heinrich Knopf, who was a German, uh, he supplied a lot of bows to another fellow named Kittel, who was in St. Petersburg in Russia, and Kittel, uh, Heinrich Knopf is among maybe the half dozen greatest bow makers of all time. So, so I can't spend a million dollars on a violin, but uh, even though the bows are expensive, it's not that kind of money. Uh, but for me, and a lot of us, the, the bow is kind of like a paintbrush, you know, and so I need to, I can, the sound, everything I'm doing is like the tires on your car. I mean, it's only, your car is only as good as the traction is. So this, this kind of bow, I spend a lot of time searching. I still search. <laughs> there may be one other answer to your question about whether there are great violins today. I said at the beginning of the lecture that the violin improves with playing. 
It is possible that these great violins are not only superbly crafted and are the best violins ever created, but also that some of these more recent violins, uh, upstarts in the last hundred years, just haven't been played enough. So, who knows? This, this is abso absolutely true. I'm, there, there are so many living parts. You know, the analogy with wine, I, I was saying facetiously off the top of my head, but the truth is that a violin, in addition to the sheep intestines and the maple and the spruce and the ebony and the horse hairs and the sap that's on the rosin and that you put on the horse hairs and the beeswax, it's full of organic materials that change over time, like wine. So, you know, when people talk about a mellow sound in a violin and a mellow wine, they're talking about things that have growth over significant periods of time. Let's say for a violin, it's even longer than wine. That might be an explanation why a modern violin can't quite have the same depth. Winnie? Richard, I want to tell you how much we enjoyed your playing. And how old were you when you started with the violin? And was it your first choice of an instrument? First of all, thank you very much. <laughs> Uh, I was about seven when I started. Uh, this was sort of pre-Zazuki world. Uh, now there's so many young players starting at you know these, you know, yeah, yeah. like really really young age. That wasn't so common when I was a kid. Uh, and uh, the story of how I started is kind of interesting. Yes, it was my first choice. I uh, grew up in Cleveland, Ohio, and in elementary school there I heard a another student play a concert and he was in sixth grade I guess I was in first grade something like that and I was like wow you know <laughs> this violin thing is like incredible so I went home and I asked my parents you know I said I saw this kid play a violin in school can I play one and my father went up to the closet and pulled out a couple of violins and started playing. Just <laughs> happened. My father didn't often say too many things unless there was a good reason for it. So uh, he, had, he had minored in college on the violin. He felt like he had never had really good training. And uh, so he didn't want to make, try to really do it professionally. Uh, on the other hand, he, he really realized how important the training is. So he, they got me, my parents got me the best really probably the best teacher in Cleveland uh, for children. And that, it was an amazing experience for me. And she had an incredible class of, of students, many of which I still play with in New York and other places. So we're going to, I'll tell you what, afterwards we'll hang around for more. And we want to just finish off this evening with the last movement of Cesar Franck's violin sonata. He's going to get his part. I'll tell you the story of Cesar Franck. <laughs> So you don't think, oh, great Belgian composers. How many come to mind, right? There's one. There's César Franck. And César Franck was friends with a much younger great Belgian violinist named Eugene Isai. Now, Isai was also a composer and, like Bach, wrote six gigantic unaccompanied violin pieces, which are still rather rare in comparison with all the other ways that the violin performs. But César Frank wrote this piece, this violin sonata, for the wedding of Eugene Isai. Frank was 63 and Isai was 30 or 31. And he presented him with the violin sonata on the day of his wedding. And uh, 
his eye said, thank you very much. And Frank said, of course, you have to play it tonight for everybody. <laughs> so there was a hasty rehearsal, I read. And uh, fortunately, one of the wedding guests was a brilliant woman, French uh, pianist, who rehearsed this through once with, um, with Isai, and they performed it, but of course there was no electric light, so they performed it in the dark, pretty much remembering what they'd rehearsed from the afternoon. <laughs> so we'll probably give you a better performance than they did at the world premiere. This is the finale. This is the final movement of Cesar Franck's violin sonata.
Thank you. Thank you.